Well, my wife Anna and I are grateful to be invited by Fred and the elders to uh, be with you this weekend, and we have thoroughly enjoyed our time so far, and I am grateful that I get to open God's Word to you all this morning and to us this morning as we worship Him. I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10, and we are going to look here this morning at Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. I know that your bulletin says... Uh, 1 through 12, but we are going to throw eight more verses on there for your good and my good. Um, and we are going to read together Luke 10, 1 through 20. If you are using a copy of the ESV, you'll find that on page 868. Uh, otherwise, if you have your own copy, I invite you to turn there with me. I know you're going to find it a great help to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. Before I read this portion of God's Word, let me pray for us um, and ask for His blessing on the preaching of the Word. Father in heaven, we come before you as weak and needy and poor sinners. We come as those begging for bread. We come acknowledging that unless you build the house, we labor in vain who build it. We pray, our God, that you would send out your singular blessing on this congregation. We ask that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down. We pray that you would accompany your word by your spirit in our hearts and minds, that you would stir us up to a greater desire for you and a greater desire to be fruitful disciples of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would minister to us, that you would speak as the great prophet of your church, that you would make us to hear very clearly your voice as the voice of the Son of God, that we would come forth and live and that you would instruct us and teach us that you would give us a greater love for your greater gratitude for what you've done for us and that you would make us fruitful in every good word and work. We pray that you would bless especially now the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 10, beginning in verse 1. After, the Lord appointed seven, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money back, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. I like to joke and say Jesus forbids us to do door-to-door evangelism, by the way. Do not go house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, 
Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I had the great privilege of growing up around uh, one of the most remarkable men in the Reformed Church. His name was Dr. John Skilton. He was the uh, Greek and New Testament professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia for 43 years. And when Dr. Skilton retired at 65, some of the students asked him what his plans were for retirement. And he said, I'm pretty sure that my, my thoughts about retirement are a little bit different than yours are. Uh, that was the beginning of what would become known as the Skilton House Ministry. John uh, lived as a bachelor until he went to be with the Lord at 98. And from 65 to 98, he opened his home in the Vietnamese section of Philadelphia to um, homeless, to missionaries, to um, neighbors. I well remember as a boy being at the Skilton House as a very young boy, and uh, some missionaries were visiting John, and there were some homeless people in, and we were having a, a little time of fellowship in his living room. And my dad asked where all these people were going to stay, and uh, Dr. Skilton, in a very sort of unassuming way, said, well, you know, these missionaries are going to sleep in my bed, and Uh, These people are going to be sleeping here. And my dad said to John, well, where will you be sleeping? And Dr. Skelton said, oh, you know, don't worry about that. Later we found out he would be sleeping on the floor while he gave missionaries his bed. Um, John used to say, and the reason I tell you this story about him is Dr. Skelton used to say to anyone who was coming to help out at the Skelton house, your job description is much broader than my job description. Because you have access to people for the spread of the gospel that I will never have access to. He used to say, there are people that you work with, there are people you live next to that I will never meet, I will never be able to spread the gospel to, but you have that opportunity to do so. When I was 17, I was um, down a very deep, dark spiral of rebellion, and Dr. Skilton was passing away in a hospital in Cape May, New Jersey, and my dad uh, had put him on the phone, and I was ashamed to talk to Dr. Skilton at that point because of the years of rebellion and where I was in life, and I'll never forget him just saying to me, you know, I'm praying for you, and I know that he was, and after I was converted and after the Lord called me into ministry, I have always wondered if Dr. Skilton prayed that God would call me into full-time gospel ministry, even at that point when I was in deep, dark rebellion. He was a remarkable man. He was an example in many respects. And he was a man that lived out to the full what the Lord teaches us here in Luke chapter 10. And he taught everyone around him that it was the great privilege. It's a great privilege that you have as a Christian to live out what the Lord Jesus here uh, instructs to the 72. Now, 
Luke 10 is a unique passage. We're going to look at two things this morning. First, we're going to consider uh, Jesus' instruction about evangelistic ministry to the 72, and then we're going to consider the outcome of evangelistic ministry to the 72, the instructions and the outcome. It's a unique passage because Luke is the only one that gives us this passage. This is a different account than Jesus sending out the 12. You'll find that in the Synoptic Gospels. You'll find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But only Luke gives us this account of the 72, and that's left commentators and theologians at a bit of a loss to know what do we do with this passage? Why is it here? What's its purpose? Who are the 72? Why, why, uh, why 72? There are a myriad of questions that surround this passage. But I think what we can be sure of before we look at this is that Jesus is giving the church universal and the expanding church. He is giving further instructions about evangelistic ministry Beyond what he gave to the apostles, it would be very easy for you to write off um, what Jesus says here if you said, well, that's just for the apostles. They had a special calling, and that's not for me. You know, the Reformed Church is very good at making excuses about why we don't obey Jesus more. And one of those things sometimes is that we can fancifully say, well, these things were just, just written to the apostles. Now, if we looked at the 12 and, and the mission that Jesus gave the 12, we would have to conclude that. That was a special mission just for the 12. But here in Luke 10, Jesus is showing that his kingdom is expanding, that laborers are needed, that all of his people are being called into fruitful service, that there is an extension of the gospel ministry going out, that Jesus is sending more and more people. Interestingly, my speculation on the 72 is that 72 is a multiple of 12 and that very simply Jesus is saying that the work of gospel ministry and the kingdom is expanding and multiplying. I think it's a very simple principle. He's showing that his kingdom is always ever expanding and that those who are brought into his kingdom are equipped by him and sent out by him to help continue to see that kingdom expand. It was David Livingston, uh, the great missionary, who said God uh, only had one son and he sent him to be a missionary and a physician. And it can be said that because of our union with Jesus Christ, there is a solidarity that what was true of him is necessarily in some way true of us. The mission that his father sent him on and for which he came voluntarily is a mission that he calls us to participate in with him. It is the same mission. It is his mission. He is the great missionary par excellence. The Lord Jesus comes from heaven to seek his people, and he equips his people after redeeming them to share in that same ministry. Well, notice that the context of this passage is supremely important. Jesus has just given his disciples at the end of chapter 9 the great call to discipleship. He said uh, that we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. I think that's important because before Jesus ever sends you out to spread the gospel, before he ever calls and selects people in special ways and appoints them in special ways to serve on the mission field or in gospel ministry, he calls us to come to him. Eric Alexander puts this very poignantly. He says, Jesus always says, come, before he says, go. He always says, come, before he says, go. The cross must be taken up as a way of life 
before it is proclaimed as a way of salvation. That is why the laborers are few. I want you to think about that this morning. If you have never come to Jesus Christ, then anything you hear in this church about taking the gospel out to Katy, Texas, and beyond to the nations doesn't matter because Jesus always says come before he says go, and the cross must be taken up as a way of life before it is proclaimed as a way of salvation. There is here, of course, in the words of Jesus, a beautiful universal obligation. Notice that as he sends the 72 out two by two, he says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, uh, these instructions are not optional. Jesus is not saying there are some Christians who are going to have a burden for the lost. And if you are in that category of my followers, then you should go. He doesn't say there are, there are certain geographical regions where I'm going to have my people and I want them to be fruitful in sharing the gospel there. He, there is a universality to the scope of the instructions of the evangelistic ministry of Jesus at ground zero of Christianity is the fact that Jesus wants all of his people to fully embrace the call to take the gospel out to others so that they may come to know him too, that his kingdom might advance, that the kingdom of darkness might be torn down, and that his name might be glorified. Again, Eric Alexander says this universal obligation is precisely that. It is an obligation, not an option. You are a witness to Christ whether a good one or a bad one. I want you to think about that. Whoever you are, and I know very few of you, you are a witness to Christ, whether a good one or a bad one. Alexander says the obligation of all is that they should exercise the ministry of being a harvester in the world. The obligation of all is that they should exercise the ministry of being a harvester in the world. I want, I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. When you think about yourself as a follower of Jesus, do you think, I have been redeemed to be a harvester? I have been redeemed to work in his fields? Um, You know, I'm sometimes ashamed when I think about all the people that I see at the grocery store. I know their faces. I go through their checkout lines. I've seen them for years. I know nothing about them. If I haven't shared the gospel with them, I haven't labored to be a harvester. We rub shoulders with people every day, eternal beings, all of them. Everybody you work with. The guy that annoys you at your job so much, you know that guy. I, I was probably that guy. <laughs> that guy's an eternal being. Um, that woman is an eternal being. And we rub shoulders with them every day. And yet Jesus has given us an obligation that we should exercise the ministry of being a harvester in the world. And now there is, of course, and 
the teaching of Jesus here an abundant opportunity. Um, it, is not, it is not a probability. It is not a likelihood. It is not a potential. There is abundant opportunity. Jesus tells us the harvest is abundant. Now, when he says the harvest is abundant, I think Jesus is uh, stepping back, as it were, from his ministry at that point in redemptive history where he was as he is heading to the cross And he is looking out, as it were, from the throne of God on Judgment Day. When he says the harvest is plentiful, he is talking about the end of the age. He is not just talking about all those men and women and boys and girls in Israel around the apostles in that day. He is stepping back and he is looking out as the judge of all the earth. And he says one day you will see that there will be a full harvest when he gathers the wheat and he separates the tare. And that every man, woman, boy, and girl who has ever lived and whoever will live are part of that great last judgment day harvest. And he's saying there is a plentiful harvest. There are plenty of people out there. You know, when the Apostle Paul is doing his missionary labors and there is a point where he is afraid to go into a city and Jesus says, do not be afraid, I have many people there. They had not yet been converted. He was prospectively telling him, the harvest is plentiful. There are many of my people there. There are many of my chosen there. Um, John Calvin says that Jesus tells the disciples this in order to stimulate them to more powerfully apply with diligence their work. He declares the harvest is abundant. Hence it follows, says Calvin, that their labors will not be fruitless. Now here's a really remarkable thing. And something you might miss if you don't look at this carefully. Jesus is banking on the sufficiency of what he has not yet done in time in bearing the fruit of what he is instructing his disciples to do. I want you to think about that. Jesus is banking on the efficacy of his death on the cross and his resurrection to guarantee that people would be converted even at that point in sending the 72 out. He is is foreshadowing for them the certainty of what he purchases on the cross. That's a very powerful thing because at the end of the day, one of the reasons we don't witness more, well, two reasons. One, we hate opposition, which Jesus will deal with here. And number two, we really don't believe the efficacy of his death on the cross because if we really believe that he accomplished what he said he accomplished and we're really the recipients of that and the beneficiaries of that, then we must be certain that others are going to be the beneficiaries of that. And if we are certain of that, then we would unashamedly tell others about what Jesus accomplished at the cross for their redemption. Jesus is building in to this call to go out into this abundant harvest the the absolute guarantee of the fruitfulness. Now... Notice that Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Um, There are going to be a myriad of reasons why there are few disciples. One of those reasons uh, is because um, many people are unwilling to take up their cross and follow Jesus prior to being willing to try to serve in gospel ministry. Um, 
Jesus is going to explain to the 72 here in this passage how difficult it's going to be. He's going to send them out without provisions. He's going to send them out homeless, as it were. He's going to tell them, you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust that I'm going to provide. You're going to have to trust that you're not going to have all the luxuries of life. You're not going to have your nice retirement. You're not going to have all the securities of life. You're not going to have anything. But I'm going to provide for you. It says the laborers are few. And then notice, and this is key, Jesus says, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Um, Fruitful evangelistic missionary work is more about who we are talking to than about who we are talking about. So it's, it's more about our talking to God than it is our talking to others. Jesus says that true fruitful labor among the harvest of the world and among the souls of men and women and boys and girls in the world is fueled by calling on the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers to work in the harvest. That, I think, begs the question for us and for you as a church, you know, how often are you praying that God will raise up labors for the harvest from your own midst? How much are you praying that God would raise up labors for the harvest from your children? You know, I've always thought it was a striking thing how few of our children we see entering full-time missionary or gospel work. And if you ask yourself the question, have I prayed that God would take my children as Hannah took Samuel, and I'm praying that God would dedicate them to that sort of work. You know, our children are not our own. They are little eternal beings that God has entrusted to us. And our main job, our main task as parents is not to make sure that they graduate from the most prestigious schools and have the most secure jobs and live in the nicest neighborhoods. That's an indictment against us when we think about what we really value for our children. And so one of the easiest ways that you all can respond today to everything that your pastors are encouraging you to do and everything that Jesus here says is to be praying that God will raise up from Christ Church, Katie, laborers for the harvest from yourselves, from retirees in this church, from the children in this church. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is saying that true evangelistic ministry really begins with our talking to God more than it does our talking to others. We can't, we can't invert that in any sort of meaningful way. Now, there is going to be inevitable opposition. Uh, I've already noted that. I think one of the big reasons why we are not more fully engaged in evangelistic ministry is because we don't like to be opposed. We don't want to be hated. We don't want opposition. And yet, we are engaged in a cosmic battle. 
Do you realize that? Every day of your life, you're engaged in a cosmic battle. It doesn't matter where you are. If you're a Christian, if you have truly been brought from death to life, united to Jesus, if your sins are forgiven, if you belong to the Savior, you are engaged in kingdom warfare in everything that you do, no less in the work of evangelistic ministry. Notice that Jesus says, as he sends them out, wherever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you. But, verse 10, whenever you go into a town and they do not receive you, go to the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Evangelistic ministry is is taking a full-on frontal attack to the kingdom of Satan. It is seeking to deliver captives from the bondage that they're in to the evil one. It is seeking to go out and proclaim what Christ has done for Christ, Christ proclaiming it through us. And when we are doing that, the opposition is not to us personally. The opposition is not to you personally in sharing the gospel. The opposition is to Jesus, and that's why there is such a strong pronouncement, such a strong pronouncement by Jesus that when Men and women and boys and girls reject the gospel. It's, it's not as if they should take personal offense and in, in some sort of heated and antagonistic way say, I shake the dust off my feet. It's because the, the, the judgment day verdict of God in light of the person of Jesus is coming now in the here and now in the way that men and women respond to Jesus Christ because this is his world. And he is in a very real sense, already proclaiming a verdict on men and women who will not turn and trust him. Remember I said at the beginning, there's a solidarity between you and the Lord Jesus. And so whenever you are sharing the gospel with someone, whenever foreign missionaries are taking the gospel to new places, it is Jesus going there. The Apostle Paul is this great, statement when he writes the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, and he says about Jesus, he came and preached peace to those who were far off, Gentiles, and to those who were near. And he says at one point, he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Well, when did the, when did the Lord Jesus go to Ephesus? Well, he went when the apostle Paul went and proclaimed the gospel. He was a representative. It was Jesus speaking. Everything about the 72, everything about every true uh, evangelist, every true missionary, every true Christian spreading the gospels that Jesus Christ is there behind them, speaking through his word, calling men and women to come to himself, and there will be opposition. Um, Secondly, I want us to consider the outcome of evangelistic ministry. One of the great things about the Lord Jesus is that he doesn't give us instructions and commands without telling us, in one sense, exactly what's going to happen. It's one of the really wonderful things about Christianity. Jesus never tells us, you know, this is, as the king, what I want you to do, without telling us what to expect. I hate surprises. I don't know about you. I I hate surprises. I don't want to be caught off guard. I don't like unexpected outcomes. Pretty sure your pastor doesn't either. Um, Jesus tells us exactly what to expect. Notice he first pronounces those judgments on verses 13 through 16 on those cities that um, have rejected him. 
by rejecting his messengers. And then notice, he says in verse 17, the 72 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, here's the outcome. The outcome is, whoever rejects Jesus gets the pronouncement of judgment, the end time pronouncement of judgment on them. And what that means is that even our missionary labors, even our evangelistic pursuits are fruitful when they result in Jesus Christ pronouncing judgment on people that reject it. You know, there's this great passage in 2 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph and through us diffuses the aroma of Christ. We are uh, the aroma of Christ to God among those who are perishing and those who are being saved. To the one we are the aroma of uh, life to life and to the other we are aroma of death to death. And um, it's very interesting. I don't know if you know this. That is the only time that I found in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul uses the word triumph. That's the only place. There are some people who have uh, deluded themselves to thinking that if, if we're just zealous enough in evangelism, if we go out enough, then the whole world's going to be Christianized. It's just going to be life to life to everybody. And that's triumphant end time glory. The Apostle Paul didn't believe that. He said, we are the aroma of life to life to some and death to death to others. We are the aroma of Christ unto God. Who is sufficient for these things? Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. That means if you obey Jesus and you share the gospel with those around you and you partner with foreign missionaries and maybe you go to the foreign mission field and you pray that God will raise up laborers from your children and they are faithful in doing that, every single thing we do, the outcome is success. That's that's a vitally important word. Every single thing we do is success. Even when it's Jesus pronouncing judgment and warnings on the cities and the towns that have rejected his calls through his people. But notice there is this beautiful picture of joy now in verses 17 through 20. Um, Very interesting that Luke doesn't ever tell us a single thing about the interactions that the 72 have with people when they go out. I've always found that to be an interesting thing. You almost want him to tell you, so they went out and they went to the first house and that house didn't receive them, so they went to the next town, and somebody received them, and more of that Acts narrative that we have of all the details. There's no details. They come back. They've realized that Jesus has conferred them with power. By the way, you will never know that Jesus has given you power until you obey Jesus in going out and sharing the gospel and experiencing that power. And they experience that power, and they experience conversions, and they cast out demons, and they heal the sick, they, they exercise the ministry of the word and the ministry of mercy, which is part of Jesus' mission and evangelistic ministry, word and deed. And they, they feel the power of the coming kingdom among them and surging through them in their ministries. And they come back to Jesus and they debrief with him. And they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And they're astonished at the power. They're captivated by the power. 
And Jesus does something very unusual. You almost, you almost get the sense that Jesus is mean at times to the disciples. And he says to them, essentially, you think that's something? I saw Satan fall from heaven. You think it's something that you've seen men and women freed from the bondage of Satan here on earth? I saw the evil one himself banished from heaven. I exercised him. Jesus will, by the way, go on to exercise him on the cross. He said, now the ruler of this world will be cast out in John 12. Now is the judgment of this world. Now I will exercise the evil one. For this reason, the Son of God came into the world to destroy the works of the evil one. And he said, don't rejoice in that. Don't put your joy in successes surrounding apparent provisions of power. Put your joy in the successes of the work of God in your privileges. Now, there are many missionaries who would claim to have great power and to have claimed to have done powerful works in foreign lands. And we hear the stories and and sometimes we're confused and we think, well, did that really happen? And I mean, why would they lie? Why would they make that up? And we start talking about the miraculous and we start getting enamored in that. And there's a sense where Jesus is here sidelining that and saying, listen, the privileges of power are far less important than the privileges of redemption. Now, why does Jesus say to the 72, do not rejoice in this, verse 20, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven? I'm speculating a bit here, but I think that the reason why we are less effective in evangelism and why we are less zealous for foreign missions and local missions and the salvation of others is because oftentimes we have stopped rejoicing in our own salvation. We're going to hear more about this tonight with Isaiah. I'll give you just a brief foretaste. Isaiah is not ready to do what God calls him to do until he has his iniquity taken away, his lips touched with the coal of the altar. He's not ready to bear the weight of the ministry until he knows that his sins are forgiven. I think Jesus is telling the disciples that. Don't forget that the the thing that should animate us the most in fruitful service and evangelistic ministry and in a zeal for foreign missions and the salvation of the nations and the people among the nations is the joy we have in having ourselves been redeemed by Jesus Christ. I actually think that's the secret to the Christian life, that when I lack joy, when I have misplaced joy, when I put myself on the roller coaster of experience God's power or not experiencing it, the discouragements of ministry, the highs of ministry, that ultimately what I've forgotten is that there is one thing that Jesus tells us to rejoice in, and that is that God has chosen us, has sent Christ to redeem us, 
that Jesus has gone to the cross for us, that we are secure, that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, that forever before God, we belong to him. We are his blood-bought people. Now, when that sinks in and joy wells up from that, it's impossible that I wouldn't want that for other people. Now, if any of you have seen new converts who have just recently been brought from death to life, they have an energy about them. Why? Because they have realized what Jesus has told the 72 to rejoice in. And they have said, this is what propels you forward. Now, I want you to think about what we started with here this morning. John Skilton used to say repeatedly, um, your job description as a Christian is broader than mine. So, if we could configure lines out from each one of you, from this church as you gather together, out to all the people that you can connect with where you are. There is a reach for the gospel that your pastor doesn't have, that your elders don't have, that I certainly don't have, and that Jesus wants you to engage in for the sake of the gospel that as you go out into the harvest every day. Because as much as foreign missions matter, we're on the mission field wherever we walk. You don't, you don't wait to get on the mission field. You don't step on, off a plane to the foreign mission field. You're on the mission field. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful everywhere. I also want to say this to you this morning as you think about your place and your role in God's missionary purposes. Um, I've said this to a number of people this weekend. Always assume that the people around you don't know the gospel and probably know nothing about Christianity, true Christianity. Always assume that. I was 25 years old. I was a new Christian. I was working in a restaurant as a a waiter, and uh, there was a girl named Caddy. She was 34. We were in Greenville, South Carolina, which is one of the cities that we call the buckle of the Bible Belt. And she had grown up in Greenville her whole life. And if you've ever been to Greenville, you have Bob Jones University and you have all this sort of fundamentalist Christianity and you just assume that people in Greenville have heard the gospel. And on one occasion, I gave Caddy a little gospel of John and I didn't think she would read it. I said, hey, Caddy, you know, you probably won't ever read this, but here you go. You ought to read it. Try to do the sneaky, sneaky, get her to read it. Um, She comes in the next day. She slams this little gospel of John down on a piece of furniture in the restaurant, and she said, okay, who, who are these? And she had names circled in John chapter 1. She had John the Baptist circled, and she had the Levites circled. And I was like, Caddy, you don't know who John the Baptist is? She was like, uh, no, why would I? 34, grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. Never heard of John the Baptist. Now that was... That was a long time ago. That was 13, that was, that was 12 years ago. Um, if that was true 12 years ago in Greenville, South Carolina, 
How true is that probably today wherever we live? And Jesus Christ wants you to be fruitful in going out, in laboring in the harvest every day of the rest of our lives, your life. And he wants you to be praying to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up laborers from this church, that he would raise up laborers from our children, that he would raise up laborers to send out into his harvest for his work that will ultimately be realized in full on Judgment Day. Now, I know, I know, we get tired, we get in routines, we get in ruts, life is hard, there are many trials and difficulties, but at the end of the day, Jesus has said there is a joy that will propel you forward in this, and that is the joy that your name is written in heaven, and that will animate you if you will keep your eyes fixed on him, And you will hold on to that truth and the privileges that he's given you through his death and resurrection. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us.